from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Etsy crafts a plan for reduced emissions, the sustainability of ride-sharing companies, cosmetics get a non-toxic makeover, and EDF's plan for a methane satellite. We're out of this world this week on 350. It's March 8th, 2019, International Women's Day. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from the still chilly state of New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. I think we should just get right into it. You wrote this amazing piece for today, International Women's Day, on 25 badass women shaking up the corporate climate movement. Um, what a what a masterpiece. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> you know, every once in a while you want to look for inspiration and boy did I get a heavy, 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 heavy dose dose of it. I um you know, we were seeking the right story to to feature on on uh, Green Biz for this this wonderful day of of recognizing ambitious, courageous women, and this just seemed like the right one to do, the ones shaking up the corporate climate movement. And I as I kept getting deeper and deeper into it, I kept getting more and more excited. <laughs> it was uh, it was hard though to to confine it to twenty five, which for me was a a special revelation um, that that I actually had to to figure out who I was going to exclude because it, I could have kept going on and on. Yeah, yeah, I was sort of wondering that. Was it was it easier or hard to find twenty five badass, courageous women in climate? And I, I guess it's, it sounds like not not a hard thing at all. It was not a hard thing. I did seek some advice, and thank you to to Sally Uren from the Forum for the Future for helping me identify some really, really important people in Europe and Asia. Um, you know, because we at GreenBiz tend to be very U.S. centric because it's where we are, and it this was a reminder that I needed to cast my vision outside of the U.S. borders, and that for me was was probably one of the more important revelations was just who who outside the US is influencing work here in the in the, in the United States and vice versa um, it goes back and forth there are no borders for the corporate climate movement really you know and that that's the way we got to be thinking well it's a really nice diverse list and i'm not just talking about ethnic uh, or even geographic diversity but names you you know uh, Lisa Jackson from Apple Christiana Figueres uh, from Mission 2020 um, and names you don't know, uh, people, you know, who uh, Janice Lau, for example, the director of corporate responsibility and sustainability at the Hong Kong and Shanghai hotels. Uh, I'm not really familiar with her. And uh, and a few others that are, are just uh, I we may know because they're in our circle uh, here at GreenBiz, but probably aren't as well known, uh, certainly not household names. So uh, this is really great. And I think this is going to get uh, I think a lot of pass around, a lot of sharing, a lot of uh, maybe it will even go uh, viral-ish. So, but <laughs> it, it, it um, if it does, it certainly deserves that. So, 
Thanks for doing that. Uh, what else is going on in New Jersey this week? Aside from shoveling a lot of snow. Really? Um, Still? Wow. Yeah. Okay. You know, it was funny. We, I, I came back from our wonderful event in Arizona and uh, overnight when I, you know, I got off the plane, came home, went to bed and overnight there were several inches. So I got to shovel the morning after and then the morning after that and then... <laughs> Monday woke up to about eight inches of snow and just it just was like wow okay we've had more snow in the last week than pretty much all winter and uh, it's this heavy heavy wet stuff it's not fun powdery stuff good good for packing snowballs yeah okay good good on that yeah we've had uh, I think our rain in California is finally ended I think Wednesday was our last big day of rain and it looks like uh you know the next week or two and maybe for a while it's we're not going to get much rain so it's been wet and you know great great thing for the water supply in the sierras and great for skiers and snowboarders interestingly there's their article saying you know it's not really going to tamp down wildfire potential in california uh, this summer i'm not sure i understand why but i guess it just has to do with the fact that years of deferred maintenance uh and the sort of the uh, not really taking care of things and not in the Trumpian way of breaks, but, but just um, some of the forest management that we need to be doing. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see, but, you know, fire if we do and fire if we don't get rain. So we'll, it's oh. it's just another phenomenon uh, in the, the new world of climate in, in the Golden State and beyond. Well, on that happy note, let's move on to the rest of the Week in Review. So I like this piece that Carol Klaus did on ESG loans, broadening access to sustainability-linked financing. This really syncs up with one of the uh, trends we had in a State of Green Business report about the increasing ability, still nascent but growing, of of companies with high ESG scores, environmental, social, governance uh, ratings, can possibly get easier access to money, maybe even cheaper capital, lower interest rates. And this came out of a out of a panel that she attended. I wish I could have been there. I just wasn't able to go to many panels at the Green Business 19 conference last week that had uh, a number of people from ING uh, Capital and from City, our good friend Davida Heller, and um, and some others looking at what's the opportunity here for companies and what does it take for a company to be considered good enough to get lower cost of capital. And this is just to make it clear, this isn't necessarily green bonds and climate bonds. This goes beyond that, those kinds of things, although they're certainly in the mix. But this is just simply, um, are there special loans and special kinds of loans available to good green companies? Yeah, this actually really helped me understand the difference because green bonds have a very specific meaning and specific goal, right? So they, they're, they're issued for certain missions and, and they have evaluation requirements that are different from what, what we're calling sustainability-linked sustainability loans. Um, and and they're, the, the latter is much smaller chunk right now, the sustainable finance market. Uh, according to Bloomberg, the figure is about 36.4 billion globally in 28, and that compares to the, the, the larger green bond category, which is closer to about $183 billion. Both of which are pretty small numbers. Uh, yeah. In, in, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, the whole market is, what, two, $247 billion 
uh, in 2018. But I just love the fact that um, this requires, these sustainability-linked loans require companies to hit certain uh, metrics, right? So they're, they're sort of evaluated over time. And did you, did you reach this goal? Did you reach this, this aspiration? And if you did, you get a lower interest rate on the loan. If you didn't, the interest rate could be higher. So it really, really requires companies to, to deliver on the, the promise of what they're going to do with that money. It's a great, it is a great piece. It really does help understand the difference. And uh, I, I wish I was there too. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. And how, and how big a difference, uh, how big of a discount do you get? You may ask, I'm glad you did. Uh, <laughs> as Carol notes in the piece in Europe, where there's, this is more developed, borrowers get five or 10% discount rate. That's not five or 10% interest rate. It's five, Ten percent discount on the interest rate. So if it was five percent, it it it's, it shaves a little bit off that, which sounds small in some ways. But when you're talking about uh, millions or tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars, that really adds up. In the U.S., it's still um, small. It's much smaller, more like two to five percent. But I think as the demand for those kinds of loans grows, so will uh, the discounts. Yeah. And by the way, kudos to CMS Energy the first U.S. company to use this sort of loan. Um, they, they took out $1.4 billion last year to, um, to help meet their renewable energy targets. Yeah. So the other piece, uh, or another piece I want to talk about, was one that our contributor Sarah Murphy did on what does a Paris-compliant climate change strategy look like? And, and this focuses a lot on, this, uh, on, on the current proxy voting season that happens uh, along with the crocuses every spring where shareholders uh, put in any number of different social and environmental resolutions, most of which never pass, but many of which uh, create a conversation with the company uh, in, in question that uh, often leads to some kinds of concessions or compromise or uh, maybe even capitulation. And so uh, she talks about this as the 2019 voting and proxy season begins, there's uh, another spate of, of climate change resolutions, specifically at the big oil companies, BP, Exxon, Chevron, and others, and asking them to set long-term targets for their operations and products that align with the Paris Agreement. And so this is uh, not new, but I think it intensifies every year. And uh, the, I think it's getting harder and harder for oil companies to simply say, this is not relevant to who we are. Right. And what's a little bit different right now is that we have seen some of the oil majors actually move on and, and act and, and change their policies rela related to these proxies. So they're feeling the pressure. Um, you, know, you saw Royal Dutch Shell last year say, okay, we're going to link executive pay and carbon emissions reductions. So they actually said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to set reductions and we're going to actually compensate our chief, ex you know, our executive suite on, on this. And that always to me says a lot when, when you, when, when a manager is being paid to do something, it tends to happen a little more quickly. Um, so also you've seen something, some Chevron, uh, for example, is, is admitting that it, it needs to work more on the sort of methane uh, leaking issues, right, and, um, and so forth. And again, they've tied that to um, their workforce bonuses. 
So what I liked about this story is not only that it, that it did a great job of, of rounding up um, sort of what's on the table at, among these various proxies, but also showing how some of these companies are actually starting to change their strategy uh, and they're feeling the pressure. Yep. Well, speaking of companies changing strategy, you wrote a piece uh, on Tuesday about Etsy and how they're uh, tackling their uh, e-commerce emissions. Well, everything they do, I guess, is e-commerce, but specifically the, uh, uh, I guess, the shipping part of the equation. Uh, do tell. So I did a lot of soul searching before I wrote this story because, you, frankly, what they're doing right now is they're saying, okay, we have uh, this is this is approximately what we're influencing as far as as um, emissions from transportation. So it's looking at its shipping footprint, right? Which actually it doesn't it doesn't deliver any of the products that are ordered on on the Etsy marketplace. It's its merchants are responsible for that, but Etsy does account for that in its carbon footprinting in its in its um, emissions reports. So finally, what it did is say, okay. We're responsible for this. We're going to buy. Uh, we're going to buy carbon offsets. So you know, we debated this a little bit. Um, you know, carbon offsets aren't really the most dramatic thing that a, that a company can do at this point to be better or to influence change. But I I do want to point out that they're actually the first e-commerce company to actually say something like this and actually to do something like this. And for me, it was more of a symbolic move. Um, that mean it was saying to the industry at large, hey, you know, we've got to do something like that about this. We've got to do something about the transportation involved with getting our packages to people overnight. Like, is that really necessary? Um, to people in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, is that really necessary? And and how 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 can we as an industry come together uh, to help influence longer term policy change? So for me, it was like kind of one of these like, hey. You know, we we're taking this stand. What what are the rest of you going to do about it? Yeah. So Katie Fernbacher, who covers transportation, wrote a piece about Amazon a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, on on how their shipping could be a tipping point for electric fleets. That seems to be another approach here because they've got these new branded delivery vans that are not yet electric, I guess. But she writes this pretty optimistic piece about that's where the world is going, and so. You know, that's a whole nother piece of the e-commerce emissions uh, world and where you can either offset them or you can eliminate them. Um, but, you know, both of those things beg a bigger question of, of you know, do we have more vehicles on the road uh, creating more emissions and more congestion because everybody's got to have it today or tomorrow? And that's that's a much bigger question that's, I think, going to be harder not to crack. Yeah, I do want to point out that Amazon also did um, update its policy. They've got a new emissions reduction initiative called Shipment Zero, um, and it's basically committing to carbon neutrality for half of its package deliveries by 2030. It's also um, been do, done some changes to its Prime program to basically um, convince, you know, that's that's sort of the big offender, right, with Amazon is you get free shipping. So, of course, you want it overnight. So it, it's really starting to look at the behavioral aspects of this. How do you how do you incent the consumers to to not get it overnight, or how do you incent the consumer consumer to maybe walk to the the delivery locker downtown and pick it up at a central location, which kind of you know gets rid of the last mile 
um, factor. So I, I do feel like it is a great, it is a great wake up call. And I, and a lot of the focus in, in e-commerce has been on packaging, right. On reducing the packaging and, and for very, very good reason. Um, but this, this raises the issue on the transportation side to a new level. And I love, like I said, I, I debated writing this, but then I said, you know what, this is an important story because they're, they're pushing the envelope. Literally. <laughs> So this week we're going to be playing a number of clips from the main stage at Green Biz 19. Uh, the deadlines last week didn't allow us to get too much into that a little bit, but we've got uh, some really great stuff, uh, maybe five different pieces from the main stage. And we're going to start off with Greg Renfrew, uh, who is the uh, founder CEO of Beauty Counter, a direct-to-consumer beauty line uh, for both men and women's products. I found out because they gave me some men's samples last week. Uh, <laughs> and uh, really interesting working on, on focusing on toxics and, and really wringing out all of that in, from their products, and more so than probably most other companies. So in this uh, interview that I did with Greg on the main stage, I asked her about uh, procurement and supply chain and the extensive work they are doing to wring out the problematic ingredients and where they are on that journey. Here's what she had to say. You know, I think it's a really complicated uh, journey to be on, to be completely honest. So for just, just I think everyone in this room probably knows this, just, but just to remind everyone. So we in the United States have an updated a major federal law regulating the cosmetics industry since 1938. And the, the law that does exist doesn't even look at supply chain, let alone the chemicals of concern that it, we're putting in our products every single day. I mean, there are about 12,000, 10 to 12,000 uh, ingredients commonly used in skincare and cosmetic and personal care products that are known to be definitively linked to you know health issues or could certainly are could cause concern and then when you get down to the supply chain no one's looking at that at all so for example you know when we you know our brand promise to the consumer is to take toxic chemicals out of our products and deliver performance that you expect and when we look at our supply chain that's that's really difficult to navigate we so where are we in the process I mean I think we've done infinitely more than 99.9 .9 percent of the companies you know out there in terms of looking at supply chain and trying to source responsibility our greatest focus is on eradicating toxic chemicals, but it is complicated because of the lack of regulation over supply chain. Give us an example of one of the chemicals that either you have or are working on eliminating and, and what the problem was with it. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of something that would that is is and it's not even specific to the chemical, but it, was, it could be a byproduct of a chemical. You know, years ago, we, had, we, have, we have eye pencils, and they moved the manufacturing from um, Tennessee to Mexico, and during that process, they changed one of the ingredients in the pencils that we were pr producing for consumers. And let's just say they called it, you know, the Beauty Counter Cocktail, and the Beauty Counter Cocktail had these five ingredients in it. Well, they don't have to disclose that they've changed one of those five ingredients. So that, that one of those ingredients that we, th that we thought was in our pencil could have potentially as a byproduct led to 1,4-dioxane. So that, that's the type of thing that we're looking at the ingredients as they're formulated and then also what happens post-formulation. And so it turned out it was fine, but we did this extensive you know, research and had to, we recalled the product or we held, we, we, held, you know, we held them back until we could finish that. That's the kind of thing that happens to us all the time. So how hard is that uh, for a company of your size? You're not exactly L'Oreal. 
So, not yet. Yeah, no, no, but not yet. <laughs> but but you don't have the, necessarily the kind of of market clout. So how, how hard is that? Just period. You know, I think when I started Beauty Counter, you know, people thought I was crazy. And a lot of the contract manufacturers and suppliers said, you know, it can't be done and we're not going to do it. And we somehow, because I think I'm a good salesperson, was able, you know, we were able to convince them to take a chance with us that the future of beauty is clean beauty and that they had an enormous business opportunity. And I think those that did, you know, sort of start with us saw our explosive growth over the last, you know, we launched six years ago and the business has just been going straight up and we are outperforming traditional brands by, you know, you know, five, ten x every single year. So I think that now they understand that there's an enormous business opportunity for them, and we now are holding them to even higher um, standards of, of conduct. But it, it's challenging because you know it's a lot easier and more profitable to do things the way that you've done them for the last fifty years. But we're not going to stand for that. Are you finding the options that you're looking for, the kinds of alternative ingredients? I, I really believe that there are quite a few companies out there that are, are you know, searching for the answers and getting them. I mean, I think, you know, at, at Beauty Counter, we are focused on safety for human health, first and foremost. That's our primary platform. And so we use both natural and synthetic ingredients. What we want to know is, is it harmful to health and is it harmful to the earth? There are naturally occurring ingredients that are obviously not safe, and there are man-made ingredients that are benign. And so I think we're able through those, uh, the, you know, the use of both of those um, types of ingredients to de deliver the performance expectations. And we are working, um, you know, we've funded some of our own research, and we are working with institutions to try to come up with, you know, new solutions. One of the interviews that I conducted on the main stage of the conference was with Peter Bacher with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and Tim Moen with the Global Reporting Initiative. And we, we debated the uh, issue of how companies and why companies should be further embedding the sustainable development goals into their strategy. Uh, actually, Peter took us to task for not paying more attention to this uh, a couple years ago. And but, you know, I think they, they provided a fairly optimistic perspective on why we are seeing more action this year. I, I've personally seen a lot of restated and doubled down commitments. So uh, here are some of Peter's thoughts on why uh, the SDG support will continue to scale. Well, I think for any business, there, there's four reasons to engage with the SDGs, right? There's massive opportunities that will be created because all the systems in the world will transform. Mm -hmm. So new business models, new innovation, there's plenty of value to be created. And I guess the best source in the world is the Better Business, Better World Report, uh, which is now about a year and a half old, showing there's $12 trillion of value at stake, 380 million jobs to be created. So opportunity is one. I think the second one is the cost of inaction is becoming ever clearer. You know, more than $60 billion of damages in recent natural events in this country alone. Uh, risk management tools are being there. I think the third reason is, and that's, that's gonna be an increasingly more important one, is the social contract of businesses under pressure. The cohesion in society, we all point at the yellow vests in France, but it's now a growing uh, feeling that the system is no longer serving the many. Mm -hmm. And I think the fourth one, and it's good to hear Joel just say that the the summit this morning was such a success. The access to cheap capital will be the one that will drive scale. So there's now plenty of examples of companies who have better ESG performance, better sustainability performance, that attract a lower cost of capital. So those are the four reasons.
One of my favorite One Great Idea segments was from Sally Uren with the Forum for the Future, and she is a, a really thoughtful person on the whole idea of systems change. So how do you change the system to support the sort of innovation that we need to happen for sustainability to become a business driver, right, and not just a, a cost reduction measure? And here are some of Sally's thoughts on ideas for companies to actually take action using the cotton system as an example. So let's try and make this real. How do we then design for system change for sustainability? As with most things in life, there are three steps. And I'm going to use the story of another of our collaborations, Cotton 2040, to try and illustrate these three steps. The first is to diagnose the system around us really understand what are those root causes that are driving the unsustainability. This is where we often use at Forum for the Future tools, looking at scenarios, for example. And the reason we started working cotton, it's a fiber that 30, is 30% 30 of total fabric production in the world, is responsible for the livelihoods of 350,000 farmers, and yet conventional cotton, sorry, 350 million, sorry, Conventional cotton is associated with huge negative environmental and social impacts. So Cotton 2040 is designed to try and mainstream sustainable cotton. And the diagnosis of the cotton system tells us there are two really important leverage points. Creating demand for sustainable cotton. A lot of sustainable cotton is produced, but we're just not buying it. And aligning the standards that certify cotton. There are over 20 of them. They speak a different language to the producers. So the other systemic leverage point is traceability and an alignment therein of the cotton standards. So then we create the pioneering practice. We try and experiment in addressing these root causes. So we've created a guide for sourcing sustainable cotton so that we can draw demand for cotton into the global economy. And we've also, with the great support and help of the certification bodies in cotton, we have an MOU for the very first time between all of the standards, trying to get them to work together to align on impact measurement, align on language, which will make it far easier for farmers to convert to sustainable cotton. Once we have the pioneering practice, we then need to scale. And our Cotton Up Guide, for example, has been translated not into just German, which is very exciting, but Japanese. So in other words, once we find something that works that starts to shift the system, we need to scale that. This is also relevant for individual organizations. It's not possible to have a sustainable business in an unsustainable system. So for all businesses, we also need to diagnose the system around us, understand where are those systemic leverage points. So if you're a food business, it probably isn't your logistics function. It's understanding in that world around you, what are the interventions you can make in your food supply chains to make them more resilient? If you're a CPG company, it isn't, I'm afraid, incremental improvements in packaging that will drive the system change. It's actually understanding what can you do to drive the transformation of the economy so that it becomes circular. So these steps apply equally to individual organizations. And the need for individual organizations to transform the system around them is why we've created four principles which are around being net positive. So net positive, putting more back into environment society than we take out, really important if we're going to deliver the SDGs. And it's about 
moving from just doing less bad. So those, those four principles are about materiality, really focusing on those areas where you can make the biggest difference, transparency, admitting you don't have all the answers because none of us do, being systemic, looking at the world around you, understanding where those leverage points are, and then also being restorative, putting more back than we can take out. Another inspirational session included Vien Shuang with DreamCorps. Now, that's the organization that was founded by Van Jones, and it also includes Green for All. Um, but basically, her, her, her focus is on the role of the private sector in advancing environmental justice. And she did a great interview with Shauna Rappaport about how companies can get better involved in their communities to, to take action, right? So she urged everyone to sort of take a look at your local your, your local scene, where can you affect change? Um, where can you help communities that, that might not um, be well served? And how can you use the money that you're putting towards your sustainable business practices to help rise up, to help lift uh, communities um, that might not otherwise have an opportunity? So here is Vien on the role of private sector in environmental justice. What I've learned in my personal life and what I've learned in my work is there are so many people who want to and can do much more and do greater stuff. I've been given a chance in my life because some people believed in me, right? And I think we now have a lot of community-based organizations in your communities that just needs you guys to believe in them, just needs a hand out, right? Yes, thank you. And so reach out to the organization in your community. And if you don't even know who they are, ask around. Who's doing some really good work here? We're trying to do some work around environment or justice. Who's some good organizations? And by doing that, you'll find out the organizations that actually can be partners in your work. And so when, when we were a scrappy young organization nobody believed in, um, some companies came out to us and said, how can we be supportive? One more recently is Ecos, Earth-Friendly Products. They do a lot of detergents and family household um, products. And they said, what can we do? At the time, we were creating an art campaign with kids because we we're like, kids need to have creativity and arts. And you know, we now have this country of leaders who can't see a vision that is not dismal, right? We wanted to tap into something beautiful and lovely and creative. So we had an arts contest for kids. And with Ecos, we're now putting the kids' um, visions and drawings of what a beautiful future can look like on the, on the packaging labels of their detergent bottles. So that when consumers go and buy their products at Target or in the club stores, you're going to see the kids' pictures of the future. And then you're, when you buy it, you're investing in a climate justice campaign and helping to actually advance that future for kids. So that's what can happen when you reach out to a locally-based organization and find collaborations together. It's a win-win for everyone. The call for us all in this room, and the reason I'm here, is because we really need the leaders in this room to step up into your power. We need you to step up into your power to do more. And I'm sorry to do it, because I know and I can already tell you guys have been doing a lot of work in your companies and your businesses. Um, and you guys are tasked with an incredible goal with very small resources, very small teams probably. And I can see already the amount of effort and love and muscle you've put into this. But right now we have 12 years left. And communities like mine, when my family is literally dying, when we are losing 12 years of our lives, and not only our communities, but across the country, we know that. 
we now have a need for you to step forward and to really lead the way. We saw when businesses do that during the Paris Climate Agreement, when they stepped forward and said, no, no, because everybody, you know, I just came back from Congress yesterday, I was testifying um, around this issue to the, um, the Senate, the Congressional Subcommittee on Energy, and they're really all saying, well, businesses will lead the way, right? Um, if you're waiting for someone else to save us, let me just tell you, those are not, that's not forthcoming. But when, when businesses stepped forward during the Paris Climate Agreement, everybody else said, oh, they're in it. And everybody else followed along. So I think that is the call to action right now for the green business community. It's how can we actually all rally together and support and move forward. And believe me, you have a lot of people are waiting and supporting and cheering you on when you step into your power. Finally, among our clips from Green Biz 19 is Fred Krupp, the president of the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, uh, covered a wide-ranging uh, number of topics about uh, where EDF is coming from and where it's going. But one part of that is Fred is uh, pretty much a techno-optimist, sort of maybe unique or certainly different than most of the big green leaders, uh, organizations, leaders. And I asked him about the role of technology and sustainability, and specifically the methane-detecting satellite that EDF plans to launch. Here's what he said. There's so many things that are obstacles to getting environmental progress. Um, it, but one of the things that has emerged in the last few years that has winded our backs is technology, both in terms of wind power, solar power, storage coming way down in price on the solution side, but also on this making things that have been invisible, pollution, visible side. And so in London, in, in West Oakland, in Houston, we've teamed up uh, with Google and others to uh, measure air pollution, and then with health insurers to correlate what air pollution it, is specifically in what neighborhoods. On a block-by-block block basis. On a block-by-block, block, on a foot-by-foot foot basis with what are the health outcomes. And as people see that you're more likely to die of a cardiac arrest um, if you live on a more polluted section of the street, um, I think it's going to revolutionize the demands to clean the air. So this has winded our backs, the fact that data is becoming easier to collect and easier to distribute. The satellite is an example where many in the oil industry have made really encouraging promises that, you know, Saudi Aramco and Exxon and BP and Shell and the 13 of the biggest oil companies have promised to vastly reduce methane pollution from extracting oil and, and natural gas and from transporting it. This will make a big difference to global warming because 29% uh, of about of the global warming we're experiencing now comes from natural gas escaping into the atmosphere. But as President Reagan said a long time ago, trust but verify. So EDF will cons construct and launch a satellite in 2021 that will monitor multiple times weekly all of the major oil and gas facilities around the world. And where will that data go? That data will be made uh, open to the public and free. So it'll be mounted on the, uh, on the web and very accessible. Who's paying for this? What does it cost? It's gonna cost about $65 million of uh, which, you know, we've raised close to 40 million so far. So we've got a ways to go. Um, 
Contributions welcome, Joel. Yeah, and, I think uh, yeah. operators are standing by, yeah. <laughs> the, um, so it's, it's people interested in climate change. There's, I've never seen a better investment in terms of lowering the temperatures we'll see in the next 20 years uh, than this one thing that will hold the oil companies accountable to dramatically reducing this powerful greenhouse gas. On March 1st, ride-sharing company Lyft filed its S-1 statement indicating that it soon intends to go public. The co-founders of Lyft, Logan Green and John Zimmer, have long been known for their environmental-leaning thinking. And we just, so what does the S-1 statement say about that, about Lyft's true intentions as far as sustainability? We've invited our senior writer and analyst for transportation, Katie Fahrenbacher, to give us some insight. Hey, Katie. Hi, Heather. So I mentioned that uh, Logan and John are very environmentally minded, um, but you say there is a yawning gap between their vision of Lyft as a sustainable transportation company and the reality. Can you elaborate? Yes. So the S1 came out on Friday and it's an opportunity um, when it comes to private companies to look at their financials, their overall plans, they have a management note usually in there. Um, so it's it's a very kind of true reality of what the company thinks is important and all of the company's financials. So when I was reading over the S1, I was just really struck by the fact that there are, you know, there was very little mention of some of the realities that come along with with the ride hailing business when it comes to sustainability. So, you know, like you mentioned, Logan Green and John Zimmer, they have these kind of transport transportation planning type of backgrounds. They've always been very environmental leaning. The original company when it was founded was called Zimride and it was meant to um, create more of a carpooling service. Um, and then they, and they and that ended up not working so they had to, um, they pivoted into Lyft. But um, in reality, you know, there's not a lot that Lyft is doing or can do to reduce the carbon emissions inherent in the influx of individual gas-powered vehicles driving around cities. And Lyft is in a very ultra-competitive market right now with Uber. Um, and the reality is, is that they're just trying to survive. So, you know, Lyft filed a $911 million net loss for 2018, Whoa. you know, yeah. which is massive. And it just shows that, you know, they're just kind of they have to be ruthless to just keep operating. And so some of the environmental programs that they are implementing and they do have are, are very marginal. I mean, Such it's arguable. Uh, so they have they started buying carbon offsets for all their, um, their uh, miles driven by their drivers. So, you know, obviously that's good and that's not something they have to do. But, you know, as we both know, you know, offsets are limited. Um, you know, they're not the most direct way to lower emissions. Um, they also have these shared rides on their network, um, and so that is part of their strategy. Um, but, you know, that's 
that's a minor part in, in, you know, it makes their network more efficient, but you know, that's a minor part of their business. Um, they also are building out scooter and bike sharing networks, um, which, which is great. Um, but also that's a, more of a competitive advantage. Um, Uber and is also doing the same thing. Um, and these scooter networks are being used at a high rate. So it's clearly a growing business for them. So it's, it's not necessarily something that, you know, is, I feel is so environmentally minded. Um, and there's a couple other things they're doing. They, they very recently, you know, as in weeks ago, started adding in nearby transit options in specific select cities. Um, but that is very new and very limited. And then they also, they launched kind of a vague plan a couple weeks ago that um, is supposed to encourage more electric vehicles into their network. So um, they had they had mentioned they had launched a green mode in Seattle, but that green mode um, brings in make makes um, riders able to call either a hybrid, you know, which could just be a Prius or you know or an EV on the network. Um, if there are no EVs um, driving around by these drivers, I mean, I'm sure the hybrid is going to be the largely the the option that's used. Um, you, so, you know, I mean, you overall, you mentioned, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you did, you do mention one thing that I found particularly interesting was the car ownership metric. Um, you're, they had some information about riders that have given up personal cars because of Lyft. Yes. How important is that? And do you, is that something that Uber also talks about? So, um, Uber has been less, um, promotional of the way that their network has led to, um, less car ownership. Um, you know, Lyft has been using this data for a while, but this is the most specific data that I've seen yet from them. They say they um, that their ridership, which is th 30 million riders, and that includes 18 million active riders, so people who ride regularly on the service, that 46% of their riders use their cars less because of Lyft. So, you know, that's a good metric, but it's also a little bit vague, you know, how less and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of unclear where that's going. And then they also say 14% of riders use Lyft to connect with public transportation, you know, which is good. 14% isn't pretty, isn't all that high. Um, and then they also have, there's this own data that they estimate that 30,000, 300,000 of their riders have given up personal cars because of Lyft. Um, so I don't know, you know, if you have a 30 million riders in your network and 300,000 of them gave up their personal cars, I don't know how much that moves the needle, but it's, but it's an interesting direction. You know, if that can grow bigger, that could, that, that could be interesting. So we talked about what they're not doing. What should they be doing? So if these programs that we've mentioned are kind of marginal efforts, you know, where, should Lyft and Uber and the other ride-sharing companies be focusing their environmental initiatives? Well, one thing is that, you know, Lyft, on one hand, it says it's, you know, a good partner of cities, but on the other hand, that they're, they're fighting with cities, particularly New York, um, on certain initiatives. So I think if they worked much more closely with cities to um, help reduce congestion and actually acknowledge that there should be some in certain cities where there's too many drivers, they should, there should be some kind of cap, you know, or, um, congestion pricing in certain cities. I think that if they worked more closely with cities to actually reduce 
the number um, of drivers in the network, which obviously is not good for their bottom line. But, you know, if they took a more proactive stance to work with cities on those types of things, I think that would be very helpful. The other thing is I think they should do a lot more extensive work to help bring electric vehicles into their network. You know, I know they just launched this kind of very new and and minimal program, but, you know, if there was a way that they could take a much more aggressive and proactive approach in helping their drivers access electric vehicles um, and maybe build help build out charging or you know maybe have some kind of more creative solution that they could invest in um, I think you know it could be a really interesting way for you know electric vehicles to move more quickly into um, the mainstream if some of the ride hailing companies uh, worked harder on this. Well, thanks for being on the case. And let's see if they get more transparent or less transparent after they go public. Yes. Um, but thanks, Katie. Thank you, Heather. So that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more uh, that you need to know about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out on Wednesdays. My Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. Check out the other three, too, on transportation and mobility, energy systems, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week. Until next time, happy International Women's Day. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.